0: As I age, I become more committed to youth. (laughs) Don't get me wrong, I have no desire to be a teenager again. Raging hormones and frantic emotions were not my forte. It took a long time for me to find myself after my teen traumas. And I have no desire to be 20-something again. I'm pleased that career anxieties, unique to the beginning of our professional lives and romantic anxieties, unique to the beginning of our love lives, are behind me. For those of you who are young, in all of its various phases, as one who has gone before you, I can testify that these years can be a wonderful time of growth, accomplishment and creativity, but they are also anxious years. We may have the drive, the talent, the intellectual vigor, but not the experience. and experience cannot be taught. It must be experienced. There is no shortcut to wisdom. We find ourselves in the real world with little real-world experience, and thus there is an awkwardness about this time. We make many mistakes the thought of which weighs on us even years later. Sometimes it is too painful for me to read my own sermons from years ago. (laughs) Marcel Proust said it best. No man, however wise, would have not some period of his youth said things or lived in a way the consciousness of which is so unpleasant to him that he would gladly, if he could, expunge it from his memory. And yet, he ought not entirely to regret it, because he could not be certain that had he had indeed become a wise man unless he had passed through all the fatuous and unwholesome incarnations by which that ultimate stage must be preceded. We are not provided with wisdom. We must discover it for ourselves after a journey through the wilderness that no one else can take for us. As I pile on the years, And as the inevitability of the relentless cycle of life comes into greater personal focus, I have become aware in a fundamental way how important the next generation really is. It's one thing to state a common truth. One generation gives way to the next. quite another thing to personalize a common truth. I must give way. I suppose it's a natural feeling. The result of one day looking around and realizing that you are no longer the youngest in the room. How did that happen? Somehow, some way, at some point, you have become an elder. And being an elder, you come to realize that more work, more investment, more accomplishment, and more key decisions are already behind you than ahead of you. And so I found that as the years unfold, the common truth of the importance of the next generation has become a personal truth that is increasingly urgent for me. I no longer simply pay lip service to the young who are our future, yada, yada, yada. I really mean it now. I'm still fiercely ambitious, but I no longer regard younger colleagues as tools of my own ambitions, at least not all the time. (laughs) They are the foundation upon which the entire edifice stands. And thus I consider my role to include marrying whatever experience I have acquired with the unique passions that only younger people possess, those enormous energy Drives and freshness that characterize youth and that are often best and most effectively expressed when harnessed to experience. I realize now, in ways that I did not before, that to cultivate, teach, and train those just starting out is decisive, a key barometer of the health, vitality, and viability of an endeavor. It's why we place so much value on schools. Lower schools and even universities are dedicated to one primary purpose. Not really knowledge for knowledge sake, although I do not denigrate that, but the implement- implantation of knowledge and the capacities of critical thinking for the sake of ensuring a good future for society. There is a utilitarian purpose at the heart of education. Cultivating, teaching and training the young so that they may assume effective leadership when their time comes. Practically every graduation speech even in nursery school in some way reinforces this principle. This hit home for me over the summer. I attended a graduation ceremony in Oxford, in England. I'm sorry, but those of you who think that religious ceremonies are boring, (laughs) you don't know what true drudgery is until you've sat through several university graduations as I have. And there's too much protest about the language of religious ceremonies. At Oxford, the graduation isn't even in English. (laughs) Latin has been the language of conferring degrees since the 13th century, and so it is today. No one complained. The parents and the guests thought it was rather cool. Even the students loved it, although they hardly understood their own graduation. But the introduction was in English. The vice chancellor of the university, he'll become the president of NYU next year, where, trust me, if he tries that Latin shtick, (laughs) American crowds will rebel. New York City ain't Oxford. He turned to the students, and among other things, emphasized to these youngsters who hadn't even held a real job yet, that they are obligated to contribute to Oxford. For all of you people who are critical of rabbis asking for money, there, under the magnificent dome designed by Christopher Wren, at the Latin graduation ceremony, filled with the pomp and circumstance that only the British really know how to do, The vice chancellor made sure to emphasize to the students and their parents in English so that no one would miss or misunderstand anything (laughs) that much of their education was financed by alumni, that there would be no Oxford education without the support of alumni, and looking the students straight in the eye told them that as their education was made possible by alumni, and as the education of the alumni was made possible by their predecessors going back all the way to the 13th century, so they must assume their role. It's what it means to be part of the family of Oxford, a responsibility that goes back 800 years, and is assumed willingly and joyously by every class of students and by every generation. And the vice chancellor mentioned this even before he conferred the degrees, almost as a prerequisite, a condition for conferring the degree. It's what it's all about even before you have left a reminder of the precious gifts that you have received and an insistence that you too provide for those following you. It's a responsibility. It's what Oxonians do. There was nothing controversial about this speech. There were no grumblings afterwards. The parents were emotional, but these were tears of joy. They nodded in agreement to the words of the vice chancellor. The students expressed their sincere gratitude and commitment to the institution. Everyone felt privileged to have been part of the Oxford experience. And it hurt me to reflect that we're not doing this in liberal Judaism. We are not instilling in our young the gratitude that universities instill. We are not creating the loyalty that universities and even lower schools create. It's often a chore for our young people to get through our training, and our training ends precisely at the moment when it should be intensified. Speaking of Christopher Wren, it was said as as the work was progressing on St. Paul's Cathedral in London, He visited the site one day. He noticed three bricklayers at work and he asked the first what he was doing. I'm laying bricks, the man responded. The renowned architect then asked the second worker what he was doing and the man responded, I'm building a wall. The third worker stood up and with a sense of immense pride declared, I, sir, am building a cathedral to God. I often think that so many of our youngsters and their parents are merely laying bricks, going through the motions, week by week, with no sense of the grandeur of our project. There is little feeling of pride or understanding of the elevation of our purpose. By and large, our youngsters are not moved by their time with us. They do not acquire a sense of responsibility for those who follow them. And do not aspire to lay layer professional leadership of our institutions one day. Or even to support our elevated aspirations. Few of them feel Privilege to have been part of the synagogue experience. I don't think it's our youngsters' fault. I think it's our fault. I don't think that they have abandoned us. I think that we have abandoned them. I think that the young Jews of today are amazing I am not down on them. I admire them. In so many ways, they are much better than we were. I know this. I spend every day with them. They are so quick, so technologically proficient, so alive, so aware of their surroundings. They are so inspiring, so admirably tolerant, so free of so many of the prejudices that affected us. For the life of them, they can't understand why gender should make a difference in professional advancement or why sexual preferences should make a difference in social acceptance. They believe in peace. They believe in justice. They believe in freedom. They believe in social responsibility. They believe in liberalism, and by this I mean not affiliation with a particular party, but a commitment to intellectual and practical pluralism. They are optimistic. They want to build, not tear down. They want to contribute. These are all Jewish ideas, by the way. They go to the heart of what it means to be a Jew. We taught these principles to the world. But young Jews do not associate these principles with Judaism. It's not their fault. It's our fault. First and foremost, It's the parents' responsibility to figure out how to keep young Jews attached to Jewish life, and by and large, liberal Jewish parents are failing in this. We have pursued many other crucial objectives, but have failed to invest the necessary time, creativity, and resources in our children's Jewish identity. It's also our synagogue's responsibility to figure out how to keep young Jews attached to the Jewish community, and by and large, liberal synagogues are failing in this. We have pursued many other crucial objectives, but have failed to invest the necessary time, creativity, and resources in our younger population, the ones most at risk. It's also the Jewish community's responsibility to help synagogues keep young liberal Jews attached to Jewish life, And by and large, the Jewish community is failing in this. The Jewish community might be pursuing many other crucial objectives, but has failed to invest the necessary time, creativity, and resources in our younger population, the ones most at risk. And thus, our Jewish community is aging more rapidly than at any other time in Jewish history. An entire generation, teens, and young adults, 13 to 30-somethings, have vanished from Jewish life and many of them will never return. Any honest observer will concede that this is a recipe for implosion. It cannot be sustained. We are already seeing the effects. In school, camp, and synagogue closings, fewer Jews involved in Jewish life, fewer Jewish philanthropists funding Jewish causes, and a rather bleak outlook on the future of American Judaism, a community that is predicted to be far more orthodox, religiously and politically, less affluent, less generally educated, with far fewer Jews and thus less influential in America. I want our synagogue to do something about it. I am not willing to let off Let us off the hook, complacently accepting whatever history dishes out to us. Poor us. What can we do? Modern Jews don't care about Judaism the way they used to. They choose tennis over Torah, soccer over services, conference rooms over classrooms. And I want you, young parents, empty nesters, elderly, grandparents, and concerned congregants, just concerned congregants who care about the future of the Jewish people. I want you to be part of our burden. I don't wanna let you off the hook either. Don't demand too much of synagogue members. If you alienate them, they'll leave you be happy that they're even willing to pay the membership dues. And I want the Jewish community to support us. I don't want to lend them off the hook either. Why should we care about synagogues? Most of our leadership rebelled against synagogues. We try to avoid you as much as possible not to involve or support you. I'm not prepared to let any of us off the hook. If we do not prioritize the next generation, then what? More Jewish politics? more Jewish films, more Jewish festivals, more Jewish museums, all important, don't get me wrong. But what is more important than assuring the next generation without which there will be no Jewish life? What are we working for? What is is it all about? There comes a point in time when the common truth we must train a committed generation, must become a personal urgency. I must cultivate, train, teach, and support a committed generation. For what is Judaism in the end? It's an act of trust from one generation to the next and from one living Jew to the next that we assume our responsibilities willingly and joyously at least as much as they do at Oxford. We cannot neglect our future. We need to get younger. We need to be rejuvenated. We need a juvenescence of Jewish life. And that's what we're going to try and do here. We will be reevaluating everything this year, beginning with kindergarten about how we educate our youth and how we relate to their parents. We want to be on the cutting edge of change, not behind the curve. By this time next year, we will be implementing dramatic new initiatives and we will confront head-on the most critical challenge of all where almost nothing is happening with the most challenging group, Generation Z. Post B'nai Mitzvah, Jewish teenagers. The teen crisis is unprecedented. You know, throughout Jewish history, the post-B'nai Mitzvah years were the time when Jewish youth began asserting leadership in the Jewish community. It marked the beginning of their mature relationship with the Jewish community, not the end. We will be launching a unique, cutting edge, comprehensive initiative that will seek to transform the relationship between Jewish teens and the Jewish community, and by re-engaging Jewish youth, the Jewish community itself will be re-engaged. We will become younger, stronger, and more confident. We will be rejuvenated, a juvenescence of Jewish life. We intend to break the current mindset of teens and their parents that Judaism is a chore that they must get through until their b'nai mitzvah when liberation is at hand. We will engage exciting and charismatic mentors. We will develop exhilarating programs and projects that will meet teens where they are, building on interests they already have. We will seek to stimulate those Jewish juices stirring in the souls of our youth, the finest youth in the world. We will open our doors wide. Any Jewish teenager in New York City who wants to take part will be welcome. We will partner with any organization that wants to join us, synagogues, youth movements, or communal agencies. We will do what we say we believe, that the synagogue is not an island entirely unto itself, but the central vehicle to promote the vitality of American Judaism and the essential force ensuring the future of the Jewish people. For that reason, we will not look only to our own youth coming up the ranks, but all teenagers around town who have left the fold. Eventually, we hope to embrace hundreds of New York City teenagers who will find joy in Jewish life, and proficiency in Jewish expression. They will travel with us regularly, domestically, and abroad, especially to Israel, to discover the bonds that unite Jews across the ocean, spanning the centuries, and by finding these bonds, they will find themselves. We will ask the Jewish community to subsidize these travels, as birthright trips are subsidized for college aged Jews. After all, If it makes sense to offer a free trip to Israel for an 18 to 26-year-old, doesn't it make sense to offer a free trip to a teenager? These are the years that the investment can make the most profound difference. These are the years where a person comes to know who they are when their identity is forming. These are the years when upon return from Israel, there's something Jewish to return to. A community that will continue to cultivate, teach, and train the younger generation, rabbis charismatic educators, and parents who will continue to embrace and attend to these kids. And the added benefit for the American Jewish community will be that by the time our teens get to college, they will not be Jewishly ignorant. They will be our campus leaders in promoting modern Judaism and confronting anti-Jewish and anti-Israel activity rather than squander resources on kids who have no Jewish background or education and expect them to fend off political and intellectual attacks of highly trained and highly funded opponents on campus, the Jewish community will be able to invest in kids that we have trained just for this purpose. The investments will pay off big time. Some of you have already contributed to these efforts, and we have enough to begin. Is there anyone interested and capable of doing this job? We've been searching for an electrifying director for six months. Send us recommendations. It's a big, historic job that, to the best of our knowledge, has never been done before. And I would like to announce on this occasion the establishment of the Gene Cipher Memorial Scholarship and to thank Sidney Seifer for endowing it so generously in memory of his beloved Gene. We will be offering a $5,000 college scholarship to a graduating high school senior who has demonstrated personal integrity, intellectual curiosity, and commitment to Judaism, Jewish life, and to the Jewish community. If you're a senior and your family is a member of Stephen Wise, apply now. It will be our delight to help fund one student's college education next year. The Book of Chronicles contains the following verse: "Alti guba mischichai al altarim." Do not touch my anointed ones and do no harm to my prophets. Talmudic rabbis sought to understood who were mishichai. Who were the anointed ones? The plain meaning of the Bible suggests that they were the kings of Israel, who would literally be anointed by pouring oil on their head at their coronation. But the sages rejected literalism. They said the phrase Meshichai, the anointed ones, does not refer to rulers at all, rather it refers to school children. Do no harm to school children, the rabbis warn. And how do we harm them, ask the sages. Is it physical harm, bodily harm, emotional harm? What is the harm to the young that the Bible cautions? It is the harm of neglecting their education, say the rabbis. It is the failure of parents, teachers, and community to implant Jewish values in the hearts of school children. Jerusalem was destroyed, say the sages, only because the education of schoolchildren was neglected. The rabbis contended that the Jewish future will be shaped by what happens today and every day in Jewish classrooms with stunning beauty and with profound conviction, the sages conclude the world endures only for the sake of the breath of school children. This old world of ours, this old Judaism of ours, endures for the sake of the breath of our school children. It is the breath of the young that gives life to the old. I realize that now more than ever. We must embark on a long, arduous trek. There will be no instant gratification. The fruits of a good education ripen only years later as the poor harvest of a bad education blights our landscape today. Let us not lose the kingdom because we neglected the education of the young. Let us gather afresh for a new beginning, breathing new life and a new spirit into our ancient people. And with this spirit we will be able to embrace our task willfully, joyfully, and purposefully honored by the trust that history has placed in us and grateful that destiny has chosen us. Amen.